0: campus i'm going to read verses 1 through 21 and you can follow along up here or in your own bible brothers my heart's desire and prayer to god for them is that they may be saved i bear them witness they have a zeal for god but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from god and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to god's righteousness christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Well, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the world. And their words to the ends of the world. But I ask that Israel not understand. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All right. I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Good Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be gracious to show us yourself in it. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would press the truths of this text into our hearts and bear them out in our lives. I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I have a five year old boy, and one of the great things about this stage of life is that typically sons at this age love to be around their daddies and love to want to help. Like most kids don't want to work. But there is something unique about a father-son thing where a son, wanting to be like his dad, will want to do the kind of work his dad's doing. And so often I'll be doing something, and Caleb will come up to me and say, Dad, what can I do? And usually I'll find something. Um, it's not always easy, but occasionally I'll think about it, and there's just nothing to do. And I'll say something like, boy, you can sit and watch. And that's actually not a mean or demeaning comment. It's just sometimes there are things he can't do, and part of the learning process is just watching. There will come a time probably where I will tell him that so often that I'll have to tell him get up and do something. Um, but that's not there yet. Well, Paul has been working away at a problem in our in our. Book here for a chapter or two now. And the problem is that people that should know God, that should have recognized the King, Jesus, when he came, have rejected him. And it really bothers him. It bothers him so much in chapter 9 that he says he's deeply saddened. Here he says it's his concern and prayer. These people that should know Jesus don't know him um, and have rejected him. And it really bothers him. And he's been working away at this. And he tells us in chapter 9 how God's working away at it. And it's our natural tendency to see God the Father working away at it and Paul working away at it and say, I guess I don't have anything to do. This is one of those take a seat and watch, son, kind of moments for us. Like, God's doing this thing. I can't really make people that don't want to believe, believe. And yet, Paul is telling us here in chapter 10 that if we don't think we have a role to play in this, we're missing out. That we really do have a real responsibility to play, a real role to play, that if we know Jesus, if we are people that say we know Jesus, we should care and we should share his good news. And uh, this, frankly, this is the one unique thing that we have to share with our campus. Handing out hot chocolate on the patio, which we've done. Giving away ice cream, movie nights, social things. Those are all great. And those are genuine expressions of our life together. And we do them because we love people. But anybody can do those things. We, in the gospel, have something unique to share. And what we can do is this. We can make the gospel clear. We can bring the gospel near. In order to do both of those, we'll have to ask ourselves a very hard question, and it's almost laughable, even though it's, a, it's because I, I worded it this way. It's a really serious question, but uh, is the gospel dear? Do, in other words, do you really care about it? So we're going to talk about those three things, making the gospel clear, bringing the gospel near, is the gospel dear. It sounds like a bad song. Anyway, it, sounded, it was good in my head. It's bad coming off the tongue. Uh, Making the gospel clear. And Paul begins to to do this in verses 2 through 5. And uh, he's sort of doing this for us indirectly. He's talking about these people that he deeply cares about, those that are deeply religious. They're Jews, who should have been looking for the Messiah, have been looking for the Messiah. And Paul says, the great king has come, and they've missed him. And uh, what's helpful for us as we think about what we can do for our campus, and if you're sitting here today and I expect there are some of you in the room and you're saying, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. Should I even be here? The answer is yes. <laughs> We're so glad you're here. And, and this is what I'm doing for you right now. I'm making the gospel clear. And Paul helps us do that. And what he says is that, for one, the gospel is not just passion. In verse 2, he says, I bear these people witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul is saying there's a certain certain kind of passion, lacking knowledge, that doesn't do you a bit of good. And it's often the case in the church or in Christian ministries that you will encounter a great deal of passion with very little knowledge. And uh, experientially, uh, when you meet that it can be overwhelming or intoxicating, depending on how you're wired as a human being. Some of you, 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 have, uh, you have great volumes in, in, your, in your heart for that kind of high-voltage excitement. And uh, some of you, you're, you're like 10-watt light bulbs, and you go in and you're blown, and you're never coming back. And um, uh, but the short of it is, unless it's grounded in knowledge, Paul's saying it doesn't do you any good, and not only that for everyone that's in that group or church, it's a highway to burnout. Because unless it's grounded in something real, it's not sustainable. So it's not just passion. And, uh, and, and in some ways, that's not a problem that we seem to ever have in our group. Um, we could do for a little bit more. Um, unfortunately, a lot of you are like me. And so bring your passionate friends. That'd be great. Um, But one of you did bring your friend one time, and you told me this story afterwards, and I asked you, I'm not naming names, what did your friend think uh, about our group? And your friend said, I thought it would be a little bit more (laughs) rah-rah. I was like, you didn't tell her about me? (laughs) Um, But in some ways, we're not rah-rah because, one, who we are, personality-wise, but two, we're not trying to obscure the gospel with emotion. We want to be rightly emotional and passionate about God's love and who he is. But we're not trying to manufacture something that's not there. So it's not just passion. Also, it's not just principles. The converse is true as well. There's a zeal without knowledge, but there's also a knowledge without zeal. You you could have this idea that the gospel, that being right with God, getting it right with God, is just knowing the right stuff, having the right ideas. That if you just went to the right church and gathered the right thoughts, and that you're mature because you got the right ideas, that you'll be fine. And the reality is, if you don't have some zeal, at least a little bit of zeal, and I'll use a better word for it, I think, love, love for God and love for neighbors, that there's something um, missing, something deeply organic and real in your relationship with who God is. So it's it's neither passion nor just nor just uh, principles. And, and, and lastly here, it, it's not a performance. It's not about performance. You, you see this in verses 3 and 5, where he says, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That is, it's natural for us, and it would all occur our sinful, selfish nature to do two things, I say this often, to try and do whatever we want that's what we do as humans. We do what we want to get life and joy. But at the same time, we try to establish our own righteousness. We try to make the ledger work out where we're in the positive side with God. We try to earn his favor or merit his love by how we live. We perform. This is why we're so quick to defend ourselves when people catch us doing things we shouldn't. No, no, I wasn't really doing that. Yeah, you were. I saw you. We are, we are deeply passionately trying to defend our own sense of righteousness. But we don't have to do that. Because the gospel is not about your performance. You cannot establish your own righteousness. Uh, This is a mistaken idea. It's a lost highway that goes nowhere. You can't earn God's favor. Instead, being clear about the gospel is simply this. It's about Jesus. It's not about passion or principles or performance, but Christ, in verse 3 and 4, in verse 4 we read, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And he's the end of it, the law, because he's the only one who came, saw and understood God's moral law, and completely kept it. The word end could also mean fulfill. He fulfilled it. Then he put an end to it by taking the penalty for all your broken laws. He fulfilled the law. And then knowing you are unrighteous, when you trust in Christ, he takes the penalty for all your brokenness, all your unrighteousness. And so if you put your faith in Jesus, this way of trying to be right with God, of trying to perform, is done because of who Christ is. The gospel is about Jesus. And what we have to offer our friends in our campus is clarity about the gospel. That's why I stand up here every week. And I tell you, there are days on campus where I feel like I'm the strangest person on campus. 38-year-old dude, not enrolled as a student, allowed to be here. I'm a chaplain. I have a card. I'm not that weird. I I, I am allowed to be here. But I walk around sometimes. I'm surrounded by 18 to 22-year-olds and thinking, this is just weird. And then I'll see a student. I'll be reminded, like, no, no, I'm not nearly as weird as that guy. But for the most part, I'm like, what am I doing here? And this is what I'm doing here. Making the gospel clear. Every week, doing the same thing. Making the gospel clear. Because if it's true, it's the most important thing ever. And also because, and I think it's true. Even though it's true, we're constantly distorting it and getting it wrong. Well, that's one thing we do. We make the gospel clear. Another thing we can do is bring the gospel near. And the reality is that we don't do this on our own. God does this first. And we see it in verses 5 through 8. And throughout these, the rest of this chapter, Paul is just dousing us in Old Testament. And basically the scriptures are the very people that he's arguing with. He's longing for these people that don't know Jesus and who have opposed him to come to faith. And what he's doing is presenting a loving yet thorough argument from their own texts. And he's speaking from Moses, and he's speaking from the wisdom books, and he's speaking from the prophets. He's pulling, it, he's pulling the tricks out of every bag you can imagine and showing them what God has done to bring the good news near to them. And what's happened is the good news has arrived right here in our laps. We see this in verses 5 through 8 when Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that this righteousness... Um, Yeah, it's uh, not something that you have to try to grasp in the heavens. He says in verses 6 and 7, righteousness based on faith doesn't say or says, don't say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up. In other words, what God has done in making our right relationship with him available is bring it right here into our laps where we think, Naturally, If I'm going to be right with God, I have to go climb the mountain. That's why the I have to go climb a mountain, all paths up the mountain lead to God analogy is so common. Because we think we actually have to like escape and go climb a mountain. We think we have to somehow reach God. We have to escape or gain some kind of esoteric knowledge or dig into the depths. We think we have to do something phenomenal to be righteous and know God. Reach high, dig low. And God is telling us here, No, I put it right here in your laps. It's arrived in the person of Jesus. He says in verse 8 that the word is near you, the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, Jesus Himself has come. He's taken flesh. He spoke. And when he left, he gave us a, a book. And he and he told his people. You should, this is all about me, and when you talk about me, I'm there and I'm at work, and you should do this regularly. And when you speak about me, I will, I will reveal myself to people. I will be at work. And that's what Jesus promised, that he would be at work right here in the midst of us through his word. Uh, what Jesus has done, is, as an author, as the creator, he has written himself into our story right here on the ground level. He's arrived. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, some of you may know her. She was a great uh, author. She was also one of the very first women to ever graduate from Oxford. She wrote mystery stories, uh, and one of her main characters was Lord Peter Whimsey. And uh, she wrote tons and tons of books with uh, Lord Whimsey as the main character. And at one point in the series, uh, Lord Whimsey has grown quite lonely, And uh, all of a sudden, and we're quite a ways into the series, Harriet Vane shows up in the stories. She gets to know Lord Peter Whimsey. They work on a few mysteries together. They eventually fall in love. They get married. They have some kids. And interestingly enough, Harriet Vane, in the story, is one of the very first women to ever graduate from Oxford and interestingly enough, Harriet Vane is also a writer of detective fiction. That's right. Who is this? This is Dorothy Sayers, who created the stories, who created Lord Peter Wimsey, in some weird way, falling in love with one of her characters and writing herself into the story. Now, depending on where you're coming from, and it's quite possible to come from both places at once, that's either like the strangest thing you've ever heard or strikingly wonderful. Uh, and what we have in the gospel is Jesus has done this. The scriptures tell us, if we believe them, that Jesus is divine, that he was the creator. And that being in charge of the story, he actually wrote himself into the story and came down into it out of love. He didn't have to, but because he loved us, he arrived and he's come near. He's brought the good news near so that we don't have to try to achieve it or figure it out or escape or become completely different things. He's brought it right here so that the good news, the gospel, is available. It's available to everyone. This is all over the place in verses 11 to 13. If you can't see this in verses 11 to 13, you should should kick yourself out of college. Um, I mean, it's just, and scripture's hard to read. Some, but this one, you you get it. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes. Uh, Verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. In other words, there's no partiality. It doesn't depend, depend on where you're from. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, it does not matter who you are or where you're from. The door is open. Jesus and the good news is available to everyone. Uh, And this is great news. This is how God has brought the good news near. You don't have to travel to a different planet. You don't have to travel to a different country. You don't even have to learn a different language. Jesus, being God, came and learned Aramaic. And then as people wrote it in Greek, and it's been translated a billion times. I mean, other religions tell you, learn the language. God speaks in our own language. He wants to be known. He's making himself available to everyone. And the way you grasp onto that, the way this becomes a reality, is knowing Jesus, knowing what he's done, and believing it, you declare your allegiance. You see, in verses 9 and 10, Paul here, again, is quoting from the Old Testament and says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved with the heart one believes and is justified with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You know, this kind of allegiance requires a couple things. It requires a a firm, settled conviction that you actually understand who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's one reason why if you come to RUF, you will never be pressured. You will never be pressured to make, like, an immediate decision. I had a friend once come and hear me preach. He was not a Christian. He was a great, dear friend. He and his fiance snuck into the very back of the church. And two minutes before my sermon was over, they got up and left. And the next day, I saw them at work. And uh, he's like, man, that was great. I'm sorry I left early. I'm like, yeah, why'd you leave early? He's like, I was afraid you're going to do one of those altar call things. And I was like, Jeff, I would never do that to you. Because I love you. And I want you to know this. I will never do that to you either. (laughs) Because I love you. And because I believe that the the, the reality is coming to a firm understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done is a process. It takes time. And I'll talk to you about it. And we can wrestle through it together. But I'm not going to pressure you. But once you understand who he is and you take it into your heart, there will come a time where you want it to be true, and you'll believe it to be true. And that will become a point of not just some mental assent, but real allegiance in your heart where it will come out of your mouth because you can't help it. You'll begin to confess it because you believe it's true. And that's what allegiance looks like. So uh, as I've been talking here, I think I've been talking to a couple different groups of people, and this is what we do all the time in RUF. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you're not sure what you think, I've told you, you know, God has made the gospel clear, and he's brought it near, and we're trying to do that every week right here by talking this frankly and clearly about what Christianity is and who Jesus is without pressuring you but giving you an opportunity to think through it and process it. If you want to talk about it, love to talk about it. If you don't believe it yet, that's okay. This is a great place to come and sit and hear it week after week. And think about it and figure it out. But you have to do that. Well, you don't have to. You can do whatever you want to. That sounds like it's pressure. If you actually want to figure it out, if you really want to believe or come to a complete or full understanding or accurate understanding of who Jesus is, it's going to take some work on your part. You have to be willing to say the scriptures or listen to someone who has. And uh, for those of you that are here and you're Christians um, and you've been coming to RUF for a while, Um, slightly different thing for you. Um, Every now and then, one of you, not nearly enough, by the way, but every now and then, one of you will come to me and say, hey, how can I serve RUF? And um, if you've done that, chances are, for most of you, I've said the same thing. The single best way you can serve RUF is invite somebody. Seriously. The single best way you can serve RUF is invite someone single second best way is you can invite somebody and care for them and pray for them. Um, because RUF is not just for you. RUF is for your friends. We say this over and over. It really is. We don't, we don't want this to be some secret society of nice little Christians. It's not what it's supposed to be. It's not what it's supposed to be. We want this to be a, a place where people are coming, like Adam said, Christians, masks off, or people that grew up in the church who should know this. And I'm talking to some of you now. You grew up in the church and you're saying, you said that made the gospel clear stuff and I'm not sure I'm so clear on it. That's right. I'm pretty sure you're not clear on it either. We should talk about that. You're supposed to know this but you're not sure you understand it. Um, Mask off. You're free to come here and be honest if you've grown up in the church about your lack of clarity regarding the gospel, your lack of care for others, and and to bring your friends with you, whatever they may think about this, because I'm not going to pressure you, and you're in the same place. You, you, you need to hear good news, and you're trying to figure it out. And uh, one last thing about this. Uh, some of you will think, some of you, you are here as Christians, um, well, I would invite them, but... And um, I, I have two things to say to that. One's a short answer. One's a bit of a longer one. But the short one is you need to know this. That there, there are people based on what our community is like and what Christian communities tend to be like in general who think they're not welcome. Or maybe they just got this general sense that they're not supposed to come to this kind of thing. I mean, frankly, you wouldn't invite yourself just into a sorority or some other social organization on campus um, you would ask some people if you could go first. But I've had a number of people, one of whom is still a semi-regular person in our group uh, that we love dearly. And the first time she ever came to our group, she said, I'm not a Christian. Can I come? Are you sure I can come to this? Yes, I'm in charge. You can come to this. <laughs> okay? I promise you, you can come. And this is important for you to hear because uh, they don't not, non-Christians do not think they're welcome. Okay? That means you have to invite them. They're not going to come unless you invite them. <laughs> Let's make it clear. They're not going to come unless you invite them. And even once you invite them, they might not believe they're welcome. So you have to, you have to invite them again. Don't pester them. You're, you're, you're pretty far from that. I'm pretty sure in our group we don't have much of that. But, but we have a long ways to go before we pester anyone. Don't pester them. Don't bother them. But invite them and let them know they're welcome. And lastly, this will be really quick. Some of you may be saying, "Um, but what if I don't have any friends? Or, if you're really honest with yourself, you look at what Paul says here in verse 1. Brothers, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they may be saved. And you think about Paul was writing. These are people that persecuted him. They tried to kill him. And Paul still cares for them. And you think, uh, actually, what if I just don't care? Some of you need to ask that question. Frankly, that's a question I need to be asking some of you. Why don't you care? Why don't you care about anybody but yourself and a few of your friends? And, And my short answer is, it's quite possible, not a guarantee. It's quite possible that if you don't care, and you call yourself a Christian, about anyone but yourself, Not enough to invite them to something like this. It doesn't have to be this. church, a Bible study, I don't care what. It's quite possible that you don't care because you don't understand the gospel. It's not dear to you. Deep down, a couple things are going on in your heart. You've either forgotten... um, Well, you may be thinking somewhat. They, they don't deserve my love. They're messy. They're trouble. They take too much of my time and effort. I don't have it. Shorthand, they don't deserve my love. They don't deserve my care. And if that's your answer, then you've forgotten what it's like for God to love you. Because you don't deserve his, his love at all. Really. Really. You don't deserve his love at all. He died for you, not because you deserved it, but because he's merciful. And if that good news of the gospel has gotten into your heart, that God has loved you, not because you deserved it, but because he's merciful and he loves you anyway, it should begin to unlatch your heart, undo your pride, humble you so that you love other people. It doesn't matter if they deserve it or not. You want them to come and know the same kind of love that you've discovered. Um, The the other reason that you don't invite people is uh, because you care more about yourself than them. It's not that you hate them. It's just that you care more about what they think about you. You want them to think well of you. You don't want to offend them. You don't want them to reject you. You care more about what they think of you than about their own good. And I wouldn't quite call that hating them, but it's certainly not loving them. Uh, Penn Teller, excuse me, Penn uh, Gillette, he's a a comedian. He's also a well-known atheist. He would actually call it hating them. And uh, he's written, I don't respect people who don't evangelize. If you believe there's a heaven or a hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that's not really worth telling them because it could make it socially awkward... How much do you have to hate somebody not to share or evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Uh, I find that personally terribly convicting. Really. I mean, this atheist has got it better than I do. Um, And I'm not beating you up. I just want to put that out there to you. That if you really understand the good news of Jesus, you don't have to be so concerned about what people think about you. You should love them enough to invite them. I'm going to close with a fun little story. It's a good one. I may have shared this before. Um, And if I break into tears, it's only because I've been sick and I'm really emotional when I'm sick. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Um, A nine-year-old boy named Mitch um, in Minnesota a couple years ago, um, sort of a miracle, was going to die. He had uh, cancer. He had been living the last few months on a pediatric uh, oncology ward. And yet he realized that other kids on the floor had it much worse than he did. His, his parents were around most of the time. He had everything he needed. Um, and those kids were just as sick or worse, but they were often alone. He asked his dad about it, and his dad explained, Listen, son, some people just don't have our resources, and they're in the hospital, and this is expensive, and they have to work and they don't have money for things, and so those kids are alone. And so Mitch, at his birthday, decided, hey, Dad, i got an idea. Um, I've got the savings account. How about we empty it, and I get presents for all the kids? So for his birthday, Mitch gave all the other kids on the oncology uh, pediatric ward of his hospital presents. And as he settled back into his bed, later exhausted but excited, he told his dad, Dad, this is the best day of my life. We have to do this again next year. His dad said, son, you're, you're not going to be here next year. Don't you point at me, Christina? And you'll that <laughs> son, you're not going to be here next year. And then uh, the, the little boy, Mitch, without missing a beat, uh, not even saddened or somber for a moment, uh, said, well, you have to pinky promise me that you'll do it for them forever. Huh. Forever. And they're doing it. There's this uh, website called Miracles for Mitch, and they're still doing it. It's pretty amazing. Uh, he died 10 years ago. Well, if you know Jesus by faith, you have riches to share. You really do. It's not all up to you. I've not asked you to go preach on a sermon on a street corner or do anything. I've just simply invited you to spread a little gifts around on the floor where you live and invite people. Jesus has done everything else. He's done everything else. He came near, he made the gospel clear, he brought it near. But when he went away, he said, you'd have a responsibility. You have to tell people about me. You have to invite them. So let's do that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these students who are kind enough to let someone twice their age stand in front of them and preach at them.